I want to direct the remarks in this tape to a consideration of the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's a, an extremely easy thing to discover by simply opening the New Testament and beginning to read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that when Jesus preached the saving gospel, the gospel has a label. It's called the gospel about the kingdom of God. That was the central message of Jesus. It was his passion. It was the tool and instrument by which he invited sinners to become saved. The same is exactly true of the Apostle Paul. And this is hardly surprising because Paul was under the Great Commission and Jesus in Matthew 28 had said, Go into the whole world and preach exactly the same things as I have been preaching to you. In other words, take the same message, the same saving gospel as I've been announcing to you and as I've been announcing around the cities of Judea and Samaria and take that same gospel, the Great Commission says, to the whole wide world, to all the nations. Indeed, in Matthew 24, 14, we read, This gospel about the kingdom of God will be heralded in the whole wide world for all the nations, and then the end of the age will come. That's to say, Jesus will come back to inaugurate that kingdom, the subject of his own gospel, the kingdom of God. It seems to us that the evangelical world is in a tremendous muddle about what the gospel is. A recent article in Christianity Today says that most Christians cannot define the gospel if asked to do so. Now I repeat that. Most evangelicals cannot articulate the gospel if asked to do so. I want to suggest to you that that is nothing short of a disaster. Can one have accepted the gospel if one cannot articulate it at all? If one doesn't know what the gospel is and cannot speak of it with clarity, is it clear that one has accepted it and understood it? I think the situation must be perilous and dangerous at this point. Another series of articles in Christianity Today allowed seven or nine, I think, top spokesmen to define the Christian gospel. There was an extraordinary variety of explanations. Almost nothing was said about the kingdom of God. And yet, plainly, the gospel is about the kingdom of God. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, Mark 1, 14 and 15, and said, Repent and believe the gospel about the kingdom. He said, The kingdom of God is approaching. Repent, turn, be converted, reorientate yourself, and believe that gospel about the kingdom of God. Reminiscent, incidentally, of Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Jesus says then, Repent and believe the gospel concerning the kingdom of God for conversion. In Matthew thirteen nineteen, we find the word of the kingdom, not any old word, but the word about the kingdom, the same as the gospel of the kingdom, is the seed or germ of immortality to be sown in the hearts of men. And it's only when they understand and grasp and embrace and accept that gospel of the kingdom that they can possibly be accepting Jesus. You know, the Bible doesn't speak about accepting Jesus or asking Jesus into your heart. Rather, it speaks about God accepting us when we receive the gospel of God about the kingdom of God as preached by Jesus. Now, back to that series of articles in the Christianity Today. Nine leading spokesmen attempted to articulate the gospel there was an extraordinary confusion, an extraordinary lack of any reference to the main agenda in the gospel 
as Jesus preached it, the gospel about the kingdom. This prompted a letter from a professor of missiology, Professor Charles Tabor, Professor Emeritus of World Mission from the Emmanuel School of Evangelism in Johnson City, and he said this, I read with the greatest interest the nine statements attempting to answer the question, what is the gospel or good news? I'm amazed, he went on, I'm amazed and dismayed to find not even a passing mention of the theme which was the core of Jesus' gospel in three of the four accounts, the kingdom of God. Every one of those statements in Christianity today, he said, reflects the individualistic reduction of the gospel that plagues American evangelicalism. You see, if one hasn't grasped that the gospel is about the kingdom, what has one grasped of the New Testament? This is the ABC. This is the foundation of everything. The rock, essential gospel message concerns what Jesus called the kingdom. So then, what would this be? To believe in the gospel of the kingdom, as Jesus commanded in his first command. Repent and believe the gospel about the kingdom, Mark 1, 14 and 15. Well, if one traces the kingdom through Mark, one, one will find that it's obviously a kingdom which hasn't yet come. It would be very strange for Mark, as an editor, to set up a document in which he intends you to understand that the kingdom of God came with the ministry of the historical Jesus, and then at the end to have Joseph of Arimathea, whom from Matthew's account we know was a Christian, a discipled and instructed Christian, Joseph of Arimathea in the 15th chapter of Mark is still waiting for the kingdom of God after the end of the ministry of Jesus. And so had he missed it? Are we to understand that the kingdom of God had come indeed with the ministry of Jesus and yet Joseph, as a Christian, is still waiting for it? It makes no sense at all. The fact is that Mark did not intend us to believe that the kingdom of God had come, except in the sense that the spirit of that kingdom was being displayed in advance of the coming of the kingdom, properly speaking. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, where we begin with evangelism, because everybody at least who knows anything at all of the Bible knows thy kingdom come, and we point out that thy kingdom come, of course, means that the kingdom hasn't come. You don't pray for the coming of the kingdom if it's already come. In addition to that, where we lay the foundation of the kingdom message in Matthew, the first gospel, when John the Baptist in the, ch in the third chapter introduces the idea of the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, of course those two terms are entirely synonymous, no difference at all. They mean exactly the same thing. And any system of theology which tries to tell you that the kingdom of God is different from the kingdom of heaven is introducing a fatal confusion into the teaching of Jesus from the start. John introduced the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. He announced that it was at hand and commanded repentance. He then talked about fleeing from the wrath to come. And he defined the kingdom as that time when judgment will divide between the good and the bad. It's the time when the wheat, the good wheat, the good seed, are ushered into the barn, B-A-R-N, B-A-R-N of the kingdom, the barn of the kingdom, and the wicked are destroyed like the chaff which blows away in the wind. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's the coming of judgment to destroy the wicked at the return of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom to be inaugurated at the same time at the future coming of Jesus. 
That fact about the kingdom is clearly laid out in Matthew 3, and that, of course, is the beginning of our New Testament documents, and we learn the facts about the kingdom progressively. It therefore makes a considerable nonsense of the gospel from the start if one fails to tell the public that the kingdom is essentially, primarily, predominantly that kingdom which is going to come when Jesus returns. Another good place to start would be Luke chapter 19, verse 11 and following, where precisely that question about the presence or future of the kingdom was asked. The people there in Luke 19 thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, implying, of course, that it hadn't yet appeared in the ministry of Jesus, but they thought it was going to come right now at that point in the ministry of Jesus. Why? Because, the text says, Jesus was standing in the proximity of Jerusalem, and it should be pretty clear then, not only to that audience but to us, that the kingdom is something headquartered in Jerusalem. That's why they thought, because the king, the Messiah, was standing near to Jerusalem, it would appear reasonable to suppose that the kingdom of God, that's to say the royal empire, the Davidic empire promised by all the prophets and the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, the land promise, it would be reasonable to suppose that that kingdom was going to appear immediately. Well, of course. And what did Jesus do? Did he say, well, folks, you've missed it. The kingdom is really not an empire in the Davidic sense at all. It's just the rule of God in your hearts. It's just ethics and good behavior now. It's just a ministry of exorcism and the casting out of demons. And so you've misunderstood the kingdom. Don't expect the kingdom to come. Did Jesus say anything like that? Well, of course not. He most carefully and specifically said, the kingdom of God, as you correctly understand it, because I'm near Jerusalem and I'm king of that kingdom and I will rule in Jerusalem, that kingdom is not going to come immediately. In fact, I'm going to leave. I'm the king. I'm the nobleman. I'm going off to heaven to acquire possession of that kingdom, to be authorized to rule in that kingdom, and then I'm going to return, establish the kingdom, reward my followers with positions of executive power in the kingdom, authority over five cities, ten cities, and so on, and I'm going to slay my enemies. Exactly the picture we had in Matthew 3, the destruction of the wicked, the ushering of the good seed of the kingdom, the royal personnel into the kingdom of God, when Jesus returns in power and glory, which hasn't happened yet. You see, if we lose track of this framework of the kingdom teaching in the synoptics, we have lost the entirety of the Christian faith. Churches constantly lament the fact that they're not doing very well. It's hardly surprising. Firstly, they've dropped the gospel as Jesus preached it. They've dropped the vocabulary of Jesus, which was always about the gospel of the kingdom of God, as we see most clearly in the summary statements given by Matthew. In Matthew 4.23, Jesus went about all of Galilee, proclaiming, heralding the gospel concerning the kingdom of God. And again in 9.35, a summary statement, holding together the whole gospel of Matthew so that we would never forget that the gospel is about the kingdom and nothing else, the king and the kingdom. So firstly, have they, they have abandoned the gospel for some so-called Pauline gospel, which is not a Pauline gospel at all, because Paul did not make the mistake of dropping the kingdom from the gospel. Secondly, if on a rare occasion an evangelical preacher does mention the precious phrase, phrase gospel of the kingdom, he almost certainly collapses that future kingdom immediately by concentrating almost exclusively on the present, what he calls the presence of the kingdom. Now, granted that the spirit of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, 
was being demonstrated in advance of the coming of the kingdom, properly speaking, in the ministry of Jesus. That's not the emphasis. The presence of the kingdom is not where the center of interest lies in the synoptic gospels, not at all. Let's point out that the kingdom in Mark is something future. In the ninth chapter, it's the kingdom which comes when the wicked are destroyed, just as we saw in Matthew 3. In the 15th chapter of Mark, Joseph is waiting for the kingdom. Matthew 8, it's when we in the future see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at the banquet in the kingdom and the Jewish sons of the kingdom who should be there are being cast out and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But that's a future kingdom. Few will enter the kingdom, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. The way is narrow. Many will say, in that day, in that future day, that future day is the day of the kingdom. Oh, one can wrestle with Luke 17, 21, uh, mistranslated in the King James, with disastrous consequences. The kingdom of God within you certainly wasn't right. Whether that means the king was in their midst is possible, or it may indeed be a future reference. When the kingdom does come in the future, it will be all over. It will not be localized. It will not be a question of saying, low here, low there, rushing off into the wilderness. No, the kingdom of God will be massively evident, like lightning shining from one end of the sky to the other. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's the kingdom of God which Jesus hasn't yet even obtained in Luke 19. But he has to go off to heaven, as he did, uh, to get that kingdom in return, and so on. Seven out of eight references to the kingdom of God in the synoptics, at least, at the very least, refer to the kingdom to be established on the renewed earth when Jesus returned. That's the heart of the gospel. But one can read evangelical tracts in church foyers, in bookstores, even evangelical scholarly literature on the gospel, and one can read it without any reference, without finding any reference to the kingdom of God. And yet we say we love Jesus. Why don't we speak the language of Jesus and use his words? No wonder he said he was ashamed of me and my gospel and my words. He was ashamed of me and my kingdom message. No wonder he said unless you're converted and accept the kingdom of God. As a little child, you won't enter it. Whoever does not receive the kingdom message as a child will not enter it. But what if the kingdom message is never put to the people? How can they enter it? Ask a dozen Christians attending faithfully at church, Wednesdays and Sundays, year after year, what is the kingdom of God? Or better still, what is the gospel? Almost certainly they will not say. The gospel, of course, is about the kingdom of God. And direct them to Acts 8.12, where Philip there was preaching the gospel about the kingdom of God. It was only when they had intelligent, intelligently grasped the gospel of the kingdom and the name of Jesus that they were ready to be baptized, to enter the Christian faith, only on condition intelligent of an intelligent understanding of the gospel of the kingdom. The same is true in the parable of the sower. The whole point there is that one's eyes must be open to the kingdom of God before one can repent. It would be very cruel to ask a man to repent and to receive Jesus if one doesn't offer him the terms on which Jesus makes that possible. What good is it to invite a man to be forgiven by Jesus if he remains in blindness about the very thing that requires forgiveness? That's to say the failure to grasp and understand the teaching of Jesus. Mark 4, 11 and 12 says, that's only when people understand the kingdom, have their eyes open to the kingdom, that they're ready to be converted and 
forgiven, Mark 4, 11 and 12. In fact, Satan understands this so much better, I think, than the average church member, because in Luke 8, 12, Luke clearly says that it's only upon intelligent reception of the word of the kingdom, Matthew 13, 19 is the parallel, only when that happens that people are being saved. And so the devil works hard at snatching away the gospel of the kingdom from the heart of the potential convert, so that, as Luke says, as Jesus says in a brilliant intelligence report, so that the person may not believe that gospel of the kingdom and be saved. Crystal clear. And yet in tracts we're finding isolated texts from Romans 10. Even there the context is not read. Believing in Jesus and confessing him as Lord, two verses, but the 17th verse is omitted. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing from the message, the gospel of Christ, the gospel as Jesus preached it. I wonder then, from dawn till dusk in Acts 28, verse 23, Paul labored to expound the gospel of the kingdom in the name of Jesus from the Old Testament. From dawn till dusk, it took work. It was not a meeting accompanied by emotional hype, bands and music and singing and a brief message. It was a day-long labor, even to people who knew the Hebrew Bible well, to expand the gospel of the kingdom. And when the Jews refused to listen to Paul, or at least some of them, Paul said, I'll take this same salvation and preach it to the Gentiles, which he then does for two whole years in Jerusalem unhindered. So the last word of Luke then to us is to show that Paul was faithful to Jesus, echoing the same message of the kingdom for two whole years in Rome. Acts 28 verses 30 and 31. In fact, in Acts 20, Paul, summarizing his whole mission, said that he'd been preaching the gospel of the grace of God, and he then defined that in Acts 20, verse 25, as the heralding of the kingdom of God. Nothing could be more plain, nothing could be simpler than the unifying gospel message of the kingdom. But Christianity seems to have lost it. Substitutes for the kingdom of God gospel are everywhere. Some in widely spread tracts speak of the gospel as being three days' work. Jesus came to die, to be buried, and to be raised. That's not true. Jesus came to preach the gospel of the kingdom, first of all. Luke 4.43 says this, I am duty-bound, the Messiah said, to proclaim the gospel about the kingdom. That's the reason for which God commissioned me. And since he commissions us to preach the same gospel... That's the reason, the, ra the rationale and the raison d'etre of every Christian believer to preach the gospel of the kingdom. But he doesn't know that the gospel is about the kingdom and probably couldn't define it from Isaiah 52 or from Daniel 2. Daniel 2 is a good place to start. There we find the kingdom of God is going to be the worldwide empire established on the ruins of a Babylonian kingdom. The kingdom of God is the messianic empire to be established under the whole heaven, that's to say on a renewed earth, this planet renewed, not some distant ethereal heaven, but this planet renewed. The kingdom of God in Daniel 7, verses 14, verses 18, 22, 27, all of that is central to the preaching of the gospel. And then in Isaiah 40, the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. And Isaiah 52, verse 7, our God will have become king. That's to say in prophecy. He hasn't become king yet. He's going to become king. And that's the time when the seventh trumpet sounds, as Revelation 11:15 to 18 says, 
at the seventh angel trumpet, the kingdom of this world, the satanic kingdom of this world, at present the kingdom in which the devil is master. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. The devil is deceiving the entire world, Revelation 12, verse 9. That kingdom is going to change hands dramatically, absolutely catastrophically, cataclysmically, only at the seventh trumpet when the dead will be raised from death, not from some intermediate floating in heaven, but from death, the sleep of death, into the kingdom of God as it then will become when Christ returns. That's the kingdom in which the disciples of all the ages are going to reign as executives with Messiah. If we suffer with him, we'll reign as kings with him, Paul said to Timothy. And it was a slogan of the early church. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Don't you know the saints are going to manage the world? In the future, that is, when Jesus comes back. But don't imagine that you're a king now, he said. You're not ruling anything now. You're the scum of the earth. If you're an apostle, if you're a disciple, you're probably being rejected everywhere. But you're going to be vindicated. Don't you know? Have you forgotten, Paul says, that the saints are going to manage the world? That's exactly Matthew 19, 28, where Jesus promised that in the regeneration of the world, when the world is newborn, when the world is restored to its Edenic perfection, as all the prophets prophesied, when that happens, then the Messiah will reign and you too will be promoted to sit on thrones to administer the twelve tribes of Israel regathered and converted that time at that time in the land renewed. That's Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, the meek of all peoples who respond to the gospel. They are going to have the land as their inheritance, irrespective of the blood that flows in their veins. No Jewish privilege here except in the sense that the church is the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16, and therefore entitled to all the promises in the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. And so the fact is simply this. When Jesus said that the meek are going to inherit the earth, quoting Psalm 37, he's simply substantiating and confirming the great Abrahamic covenant, now extended, of course, since the death of Jesus to the Gentiles and so on, so that all of us as one group, neither Jew nor Greek, slave uh, nor master, and so on, male or female, all are one, the one Israel of God, the true circumcision, Philippians Philippian 3, verse 3. The pattern of the New Testament is very simple, provided, however, one doesn't get muddled by going to listen to sermons about departure to heaven. We've dropped the term kingdom from the gospel. This is a serious loss of information. The kingdom of God must be restored to the gospel. Everything in the New Testament looks forward to that grand restoration, Acts 3.21. Heaven must retain the nobleman, Acts 3.21. Heaven must retain the Messiah until the time comes for the apocatastasis, the restoration, the putting back right of everything that's in a mess now, the straightening out of the world, which will be achieved and implemented only at the return of Jesus. It's no good trying to fix the world now, much less to try to help the world with a distorted gospel. The church had better sit in church and learn the gospel before it goes out to preach anything to anyone. Otherwise, it certainly goes out with a blunted tool, with a half gospel. And that won't do. Galatians 1 is fair warning that any compromise of the gospel, any addition to it, any subtraction to it, must be anathema, because a false gospel offers false assurance 
to the believer, invites him to think that he's saved when he's not. That's a terrible tragedy. Only the true gospel can save, and that gospel must be worked out beginning in Genesis 12 because Galatians 3.8 says that the gospel was preached ahead of time to Abraham. It takes us right back to the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promise, the seed in the soil, the promise of the Christ, the seed, and the promise of the land, the kingdom in which, in which to place the king, the king and the kingdom, the seed in the soil, the land and the officer who presides over the land. And the Davidic covenant only adds to that marvelous picture by supplying the royal family in perpetuity. Luke 1 verse 32 says that the Messiah to be begotten in the womb of Mary, begotten incidentally, not just conceived, Matthew 1 verse 20, begotten by God in the womb of Mary. That Messiah, and only he, is entitled one day to sit on the throne of David and rule over the house of Jacob, exactly as all the prophets had said. It is really a ghastly muddle to say that Jesus is now presiding on the throne of David. That would be like saying that the Queen of England's throne is really in Russia. That is nonsense. Acts 1, verses 5 to 7, were designed by Luke to block any such misconception. In Acts 1, 3, the disciples were involved in a six-week seminar with the risen Christ, where, of course, the topic was his favorite topic, the kingdom of God, Acts 1, 3. They discoursed together for six weeks on the kingdom of God. These were disciples who had already preached the kingdom, knew exactly what that was, but needed even further instruction. In Acts 1, 6, then, they asked their final question. The right question, of course. These apostles, these holy apostles, were not dumb idiots. They were about to go to the world as accredited agents of the risen Jesus. They knew exactly what they were talking about. Jesus, as instructor, was more than sufficient. At the end of that period of six weeks, they said, well, since you're talking about the Spirit coming, does that mean the kingdom of God is going to come immediately? Jesus very clearly distinguished in his answer between the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost in a few days' time and the future coming of the kingdom as the restored theocracy to Israel, which it always was, the blessed coming kingdom of David. That restored theocracy, that world empire to come, was not going to come at Pentecost, he said. This exactly, of course, fits with Luke chapter 19. All of this is very clear until, A, one drops the term kingdom from one's vocabulary, or B, collapses the future kingdom into the present. These are the mistakes that have to be corrected. It's impossible to read the Bible intelligently with the wrong framework, but ever, ever since the time of Origen and the allegorizing church fathers, the kingdom of God has been under a cloud and in a fog. Strength will return to the church when the gospel of the kingdom is restored, when the gospel is restored, in fact. Matthew 24, 14 states that this gospel about the kingdom, that's the only gospel there is and ever was, the one and only gospel of the kingdom, but the kingdom being made clear and offered to the potential convert as his hope and his anchor and as conveying and transmitting to him the very spirit and the mind of Jesus. When that kingdom comes, the world will be full of the knowledge of God. Till that time, the kingdom will make some progress 
in terms of individual believers. The spirit of the kingdom, the promise of the kingdom, the hope of the kingdom is present, the preaching of the kingdom is present, but the kingdom itself lies in the future. Thy kingdom come. It's a simple fact that Jesus was a herald of the gospel of the kingdom. It's a very simple fact to establish that evangelicals do not apparently understand this, and it's not hard to see why. Some extraordinary theories have been superimposed on the New Testament, such as to render the gospel of the kingdom null and void. In some circles it was actually said, and it's hard to imagine a greater cancellation of the New Testament than this, that the gospel of the kingdom is not to be preached now. It was preached to Jews. It shouldn't be preached now. It will be preached again during the tribulation by Jews to Jews. That is a terrible insult to Messiah and the precious documents of the New Testament. A terrible confusion, equal almost to the confusion of saying that the kingdom of heaven is different from the kingdom of God. These are techniques of preaching which render the text incomprehensible, and no wonder the churches are weak. No, the kingdom of God is the land promise made to Abraham renewed. Whether you speak of the land or the kingdom, it makes no difference. In Romans 4, verse 13, Paul remarked that to Abraham was given the promise of the land, the world. He's talking about the kingdom of God, of course, as the renewed earth. The earth of which Jesus spoke so eloquently in Matthew 5, verse 5, and promised it to the meek. The land is your inheritance. That's the land promise now coming to all believers, irrespective of their national origin. Finally then, in Revelation 5, verse 10, the climax of the story, just as we expect from text after text in the teaching of Jesus and Paul and Peter, the kingdom of God will be administered by the saints of all the people groups. Revelation 5, 9, and 10 is about the first verse to which a potential convert should be introduced. Jesus there has, through his blood, gathered a mixed group of folks, men and women, from all nations, peoples, tongues, and has constituted them in good Israel fashion, since they are the Israel of God, constituted them, Jews and Gentiles alike, a kingdom of priests, using the text in Exodus 19, Verse 6, which applied to physical Israel in that day, and now applied to the totality of the spiritual Israel, the Israel of God, now applied in that marvelous text in Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. They've been constituted a kingdom of priests, and they will rule with Messiah, Epitesis, upon the earth. They'll inherit the land, the land of the promise in which Abraham dwelt without ever living, or ra rather, without ever owning that kingdom land, but looking forward to the inheritance of Canaan, the renewed earth, in the time of Messiah, many thousands years, uh, years ahead of his life, of course. All these, the book of Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 13 and 39 says, all these noble patriarchs and heroes of the faith died looking forward to the kingdom of God to be established on the earth. And we then come along later believed the same gospel of the kingdom as was preached to Abraham in advance. And we receive the down payment upon reception of that kingdom, the down payment of the Spirit. That Spirit is itself called the Spirit of the Promise, Ephesians 1, 14 and 15. The Spirit, that, spirit that is, 
of the promise made to Abraham, the promise of the kingdom which God has guaranteed to all who love him, James chapter 2, verse 5. The story coheres beautifully once the vocabulary is put back in place and the gospel is defined as the kingdom, the word of the kingdom, the word of God, which is not just a synonym for the Bible at all, but it's the gospel within the Bible. And I mentioned that in passing, that to speak of the word of God as simply a synonym for the Bible is highly confusing. It's to talk of the core of the apple as though it was synonymous with the apple itself. The heart of the Bible is the gospel of the kingdom, the last word to mankind, preached by Messiah initially, Hebrews 2.3. Salvation was announced by Jesus three and a half years before he died. To speak of Jesus as only a Savior who dies and rises is to destroy the gospel, and that tragically has happened. But with all the sophistication of modern scholarship, all the Bible aids and helps, surely we can return to the vocabulary of the New Testament and begin to speak for at least... I don't know how many years, but hundreds of years, if the age should go on. If Jesus would not come back, it will take a lot of redressing the balance to get the gospel clear. We can begin by speaking always of the gospel as the gospel concerning not heaven, but the kingdom of God. Would heaven could be usefully dropped from the whole scheme because it's no longer comprehensible to Bible readers, having been so mangled and massacred by the platonic notion of souls going to heaven when they die, an idea totally foreign to the preaching and teaching of the New Testament. So with the return of the gospel, we will have a clear grasp of the kingdom, that's the rule of Christ and the saints on the renewed theocratic kingdom of all the prophets, the hopes of the patriarchs. May that day come, may that day come soon. Until then, may the gospel of the kingdom, the saving gospel of Jesus, be preached everywhere in all the world as per Matthew 24, verse 14. A number of prominent commentators on the New Testament, authors on the central issues of the gospel of Jesus, the gospel as Jesus preached it, have made exactly the point that we're trying to make on this tape. Dallas Willard, in an important book called The Divine Conspiracy, Rediscovering Our Hidden Life in God, speaks of the constant tendency of churches and evangelists to preach what he calls gospels of sin management in which the actual teaching of Jesus is in fact not conveyed at all. He says this on page 57, we are flooded with what I've called gospels of sin management in one form or another, while Jesus' invitation to the life of the age to come, eternal life, right now in the midst of work, business and profession, remains for the most part ignored and unspoken. He goes on and says, asks this question, Must not all who speak for Christ constantly ask themselves these crucial questions? Does the gospel I preach and teach have a natural tendency to cause people who hear it to become full-time students of Jesus? I think the answer is very clearly not. This is my comment now in response to Dallas Willard's question. It's clear that most churchgoers are not students of the message of Jesus at all. As the article in Christianity Today said, they cannot even articulate the gospel. This raises the question then as to whether they've understood the gospel or even heard it properly. Many, uh, Dallas Willard goes on to point out, are deploring the emphasis today on sin management, on personal improvement, in the absence of a clear statement 
of the gospel as Jesus preached it. He says this, We who profess Christianity will believe what is constantly presented to us as gospel. If gospels of sin management are preached, they are what Christians will believe. And those in the wider world who reject those gospels will believe that they have reject what they have rejected is the gospel of Jesus Christ himself, when in fact they haven't yet even heard it. That's on page 58 of Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. Professor Willard then goes on to quote uh, a page or two of my own book on the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of the Messiah, a solution to the riddle of the New Testament. In a, a section entitled, The Kingdom Must Make Sense, he says this, The gospel, as Jesus preached it, must make sense to us, and his message must come to us free of the deadening legalisms, political sloganeering, and dogmatic traditionalisms, long proven by history to be soul-crushing dead ends. Obviously, it does not come to us now, and this is a fact widely recognized. End of quotation on page 59 of The Divine Conspiracy. In other words, the gospel of Jesus does not come to us clearly, he maintains. He then quotes the citations that I brought together in my own book, The Coming Kingdom of the Messiah. At the 1974 Lausanne Conference on World Evangelization, Michael Green asked rhetorically, How much have you heard here about the kingdom of God? And his answer was, Not much. It's not our language. But it was Jesus' prime concern. End of quotation. And then Dr. I. Howard Marshall of the University of Aberdeen has commented as follows. During the past 16 years, I can recollect only two occasions on which I have heard sermons specifically devoted to the theme of the kingdom of God. I find this silence rather surprising because it's universally agreed by New Testament scholars that the central theme of the teaching of Jesus was the kingdom of God. And a quotation from Dr. I. Howard Marshall. I think that's really very remarkable because not only was the kingdom of God the central teaching of Jesus, it was the central preaching in regard to the gospel. The fact that seems to have been almost entirely suppressed is that Jesus was the prototype preacher of the saving gospel. He didn't just teach about the kingdom of God. He presented the kingdom of God material as essential saving gospel. If one examines articles on, for example, Jesus as mediator in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, a reference there is found to the fact that Jesus was prophet, priest, and king. But if one then goes on to see what is said about those three categories, it's amazing that the section on Jesus as prophet amounts to about seven or eight lines. The section on Jesus as high priest, as priest, amounts to several pages. Surely it's possible to discern from this extraordinary reduction of Jesus in his uh, function as prophet the fact that his gospel of the kingdom has been suppressed it simply isn't preached Jesus in other words is not preached Professor Willard then in his book The Divine Conspiracy goes on to quote from Peter Wagner perhaps the best known leader in the worldwide church growth movement and he also refers to the unanimous opinion of modern scholarship that the kingdom of God was indeed the message and we should add, the gospel of Jesus. And Peter Wagner says this, quote, 
I cannot help wondering out loud why I haven't heard more about the kingdom of God in the thirty years I've been a Christian. I certainly read about the kingdom enough in the Bible, but I honestly cannot remember any pastor whose ministry I've been under actually preaching a sermon on the kingdom of God. As I rummage through my own sermon barrel, I now realize that I, myself, have never preached a sermon on the kingdom. Where has the kingdom been? End of quotation from Peter Wagner. Now, surely that's the most engaging quotation. Peter Wagner has been planting churches all over. Peter Wagner has not been preaching what Jesus preached. It must therefore follow that Peter Wagner has been founding churches in the name of Jesus, sailing under false colors. One cannot plant a church, a Christian church, in the absence of the very saving message of Jesus himself. Peter Wagner, on his own confession, has not been preaching the gospel. He's never even preached on the kingdom of God. That must mean he's never preached the gospel. Professor Willard goes on to say this, Does what we've discussed in this chapter not make it clear that serious difficulties currently bar people of good intent from an effectual understanding of Jesus' gospel for life and discipleship? One could add to these quotations many others, which likewise, from various denominational quarters, deplore the fact that the gospel as Jesus preached it has been silenced. Jesus, in other words, has been muzzled. Now, that's not to say that the name of Jesus has not been used widely. Of course it is. Jesus is offered for salvation. But, you see, the devil only really has one trick, and that is to separate Jesus from his teachings. This is the whole point, then, of Jesus' dire warning in Matthew 7, where he says that many will claim in that future day of judgment when the kingdom is established, Lord, haven't we preached in your name? Haven't we done miracles in your name? and many wonderful works, only to find that they were never even recognized as Christians. I suggest that that awful situation can only arise when the gospel as Jesus preached it, the gospel of the kingdom, is removed from Jesus. In other words, Jesus is separated and divorced from his own teaching, at which point then another Jesus steps into the foreground, and that other Jesus, the one who died and rose only without preaching the kingdom, is offered as the Savior. And this is patently what has happened in both Roman Catholic and Protestant theology and preaching. If I may now quote a section from my own book on the subject of the kingdom of God, Our Fathers Who Aren't in Heaven, on page 45, in a section headed The Neglect of the Message. This is what I wrote. If there's one element of biblical faith which churches often seem to avoid and theologians have obscured, it's the matter of the meaning to be attached to Jesus' favorite term, the kingdom of God, which is a thoroughly Hebrew messianic concept. To interpret any document intelligently, one must enter the thought world of those whom one is attempting to understand. If one blunders in the interpretation of key terms and expressions, a disastrous misunderstanding will result. That such a breakdown in the transmission of the original faith, due to a failure to reckon with the Jewishness of Jesus and his message about the kingdom, has occurred, was noted by an astute scholar of the Church of England. Critical of trends which developed in the Church from the second century to the fourth century, he wrote this, I quote, The Church as a whole failed to understand the Old Testament 
and the Greek and Roman mind, in turn, came to dominate the church's outlook. From that disaster, the church has never recovered, either in doctrine or in practice. And a quotation from Canon Gouge in his The Calling of the Jews, Essays on Judaism and Christianity. Now, the root of the problem, I went on to point out in my book, was similarly diagnosed by a Jewish historian, a translator of the New Testament, and sympathetic to Christianity. He said this, Christians would greatly delude themselves if they were to imagine that Jews on any major scale could subscribe to the tenets of the Christian religion, which owes so much to the legacy of polytheism. Because Christians have not become Israelites, but have remained essentially Gentiles, their spiritual inclinations are towards doctrines for which they have been prepared by inheritance from the pagan past, in a quotation. Now, this tragic departure of the church from the biblical message of the kingdom, as Jesus preached it, was noted also by an archbishop of the Anglican Church. He expressed his astonishment that the central fundamental concept of Jesus' gospel message, the kingdom, had been neglected for most of church history. He says this in his book, Personal Religion and the Life of Fellowship. And I'm quoting here from William Temple, former famous Archbishop of Canterbury. He wrote, Every generation finds something in the gospel which is of special importance to itself and seems to have been overlooked in the previous age or sometimes in all previous ages of the church. The great discovery of the age in which we live, and he was writing in 1926, the great discovery of the age in which we live is the immense prominence given in the gospel to the kingdom of God. To us, he said, it is quite extraordinary that it figures so little in the theology and religious writings of almost the entire period of Christian history. Certainly in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it has a prominence that could hardly be increased. Now, it's almost impossible to exaggerate the significance of this challenge and observation of the Archbishop of Canterbury. A glance at the Gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry will reveal to every impartial reader the simple fact that Jesus, the original herald of the Christian Gospel, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, was a preacher of the Gospel of the Kingdom. There can be absolutely no doubt about this. Can anyone question F.C. Grant's assessment of Jesus' purpose? He said this, It may be said that the teaching of Jesus concerning the kingdom of God represents his whole teaching. It's the main determinative subject of all of his discourse. His ethics were ethics of the kingdom. His theology was theology of the kingdom. His teaching regarding himself cannot be understood apart from his interpretation of the kingdom of God. End of quotation. Now, it's equally clear that Jesus intended his own kingdom message, the gospel or good news, to be the chief concern of those who claimed to represent him for the whole period of history until his promised return in the future. Giving his marching orders to the church, Jesus commanded his followers to teach everything he had taught to those whom they were going to disciple and initiate into the faith by baptism. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, the Great Commission. The task of the faithful, as Jesus saw it, would be to preach this gospel about the kingdom in all the world. Matthew 24, verse 14. 
It's a very simple matter to document the absence of the gospel of the kingdom of God from the church's preaching in the past and now. Just listen to evangelistic tapes, and with very rare exceptions, Dr. John Piper would be one of those exceptions, there's not even a mention of the phrase gospel of the kingdom. And as we saw in the Christianity Today magazine, attempts to define the gospel by leading writers, nine of them, produced exceedingly little explanation, if even a mention, of the kingdom of God. Now listen, example, for example, to the call of evangelists today, to potential converts. Is the phrase gospel of the kingdom the main subject of the appeal for men and women to become Christians? Do pulpits the length and breadth of the land resound with clear expositions of what Jesus meant by the gospel of the kingdom, and indeed what he meant by repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom? Mark 1, 14 and 15. Apparently this is not the case. In his book Church Growth and the Whole Gospel, the noted American church planter Peter Wagner agrees with George Ladd that modern scholarship is quite unanimous in the opinion that the kingdom of God was the central message of Jesus. And Peter Wagner, as we saw a few moments ago, then uh, was astonished at the fact that he himself, although he'd planted multiple churches, had never in fact preached the gospel of the kingdom. A Roman Catholic writer comes to the extraordinary admission that what he had learned in seminary did not include an explanation of Jesus' message about the kingdom. B.T. Viviano, in his book The Kingdom of God in History, says this, As a teacher of New Testament literature, it early became obvious to me that the central theme of the preaching of the historical Jesus of Nazareth was the near approach of the kingdom of God. Yet, to my amazement, this theme played hardly any role in the systematic theology I had been taught in the seminary. Upon further investigation, I realized that this theme had in many ways been largely ignored in the theology and spirituality and liturgy of the Church in the past 2,000 years. Exactly the same finding as we read from the Archbishop of Canterbury just a moment ago. And when that theme had not been ignored, Viviana went on to say, it has often been distorted beyond recognition. How could this be? End of quotation. Do we realize what's being said here? Not only has the gospel not been preached, but on the rare occasion when the kingdom of God has been mentioned, it's been distorted beyond recognition. Mainly, I should say, by collapsing the whole future vision of worldwide peace and a new theocracy coming, by collapsing that into some vague rule of Christ in one's heart now. Certainly the spirit must rule in the heart of Christians, but that's not the main and principal and determinative meaning of the word kingdom of God in the Gospels. Another quotation from the journal Missiology, where Arthur F. Glasser writes as follows. Let me ask, he says, when is the last time you heard a sermon on the kingdom of God? Frankly, I'd be hard put to recall ever having heard a solid exposition of this theme. How do we square this silence with the widely accepted fact that the kingdom of God dominated our Lord's thought and ministry? My experience is not uncommon. I've checked this out with my colleagues. Of course, they readily agree they've often heard sermons on bits and pieces of Jesus' parables. But as for a solid sermon on the nature of the kingdom of God as Jesus taught it upon reflection, they too began to express surprise that it's the rare pastor who tackles the subject. 
Now, this has got to be a disaster because since the gospel is to do with the kingdom and that no salvation, no conversion can take place in the absence of the preaching of the gospel, then it must follow that since the gospel of the kingdom is not being preached, invitations to salvation in the biblical sense are not being clearly put to the public. One needs no special theological training to conclude that something is drastically askew here when leading exponents of the faith in our day confess that Jesus' gospel message is unfamiliar to them. At the level of popular evangelism, it's evident that the critical kingdom element is missing entirely from presentations of the saving message. Billy Graham defines the gospel by dividing it into two main components. The first element, he says, is the death of Jesus, which is half the gospel, and the other half, he says, is the resurrection of Jesus. But this definition of the gospel by Billy Graham omits the basis of the gospel message. Jesus announced the kingdom of God as the heart of the gospel long before he said a word about his death and resurrection. Luke reports that the disciples went out proclaiming the gospel even before they had any knowledge of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Luke 18, 31-34. It follows logically, therefore, that there is more to the gospel than the death and resurrection of Christ, essential, of course, as these things also are. We've quoted Michael Green, who says that our language is not the language of Jesus when he was attending the Lausanne Conference on Evangelism. We don't sound like Jesus. Our words are not the words of Jesus. We don't speak of the gospel of the kingdom as Jesus and the New Testament apostles always do. The point is clear. The kingdom of God gospel has been dropped. The gospel as Jesus preached it has been dropped. The gospel, in other words, of Jesus Christ himself has been ignored and suppressed. What's been put in its place is a half-gospel based on isolated texts of Paul quoted out of context. What's necessary, then, is a return to Romans 10, verse 17, where faith is said to arise from hearing the message of Christ, Christ's own gospel. That's the saving word in the parable of the sower. It's the seed of immortality, the germ of the new life, which is going to blossom finally at the resurrection when Christ comes back into immortality. We suggest then that a major reform is required. We must give up our Protestant heritage, which has terribly obscured the teaching of Jesus. It was Luther who said that the gospel is not really found in the gospels. It was C.S. Lewis who made the same mistake. And it's time for us to accept the challenge of those who point out that the kingdom of God needs to be restored to the center and the heart of gospel and salvation preaching. We invite you to go to our website at restorationfellowship.org for some 260 programs on the issue of the kingdom, radio programs archived there. We have other literature and articles directed towards the same themes as expressed in this tape. Meanwhile, may God bless you in your search for truth, and truth, remember, should be embraced at all costs. I'm Anthony Buzzard, speaking to you here from Bible College in Atlanta, and we now follow with a telephone number and other information. You have been listening to Focus on the Kingdom. Sir Anthony Buzzard has written a book entitled The Coming Kingdom of the Messiah, A Solution to the Riddle of the New Testament. For this book and other free literature, contact us at Atlanta Bible College, Box 100,000, Morrow, Georgia, 30260. That's Atlanta Bible College, Box 100,000, Morrow, Georgia, 30260. Or you may call 
1-800-347-4261. That's 1-800-347-4261. You can email us at anthonybuzzard at mindspring.com and visit our webpage at www.focusonthekingdom.org where a complete series of these programs is available. Join us again for our continuing discussion of the Christian gospel of the kingdom as Jesus preached it.